right, we are rolling once again. I am Lee Grant. This is Kevin Pendergrass, and we are exploring faith and pursuing grace. That's our mission in life. That's what we're trying to do is grow more in our knowledge of God's will and who God is and who he reveals himself to be through the pages of Scripture. And one of the things that Kevin and I have both realized on our journeys is that our God is a God of mercy. He is a God of love and he is a God of grace. And he is a God that desires his people to have unity with one another. So this episode, we're going to pick up where we left off last time. In our last episode, we had discussed unity and what unity is. And we had discussed the idea and the concept of unity and uniformity and comparing those two things together. One of the things that I used to believe, and I know Kevin, you used to believe this too, is that unity means that you think the exact same thing as someone else, that you have all of the right doctrinal concepts in your mind and you're practicing all the right things and that you are perfectly united in your viewpoint and perspective of the scriptures, of what the doctrine of the church is, what you do as a Christian, what you don't do as a Christian, and all of that. That is how I viewed unity. That is how you viewed unity. And through that perspective and through that lens, at that point, you and I wouldn't have had unity with one another because we view different concepts in different ways. Exactly. You can't have unity uh, with someone if you believe that you have to see everything alike because it's impossible. You, yes. you could never achieve that type of of unity. Well, number one, that's not even unity, <laughs> as we talked about in the last episode. And if you believed it was as we did, you find yourself continuing to to cut your to to cut people. Uh, or not cut people, but cut, 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 your, off. cut your lines of fellowship. And uh, you may cut them in the process if you're angry. I don't know. But yeah, you begin to just continue to cut people off and your, your whole just f- community gets smaller and smaller and smaller because you believe that that person is wrong and this person is wrong. And, and the only way that you can ever be in agreement with that individual is if they see things the way that you see them. And so if you believe that and the other person believes that and both people never see eye to eye, then they can never be unified. And so that's not unity. And so in this episode, we're going to talk about some solutions. And And I continue to bring this up in the first episode because I know people are having questions. They're, they're probably sitting there thinking, okay, Kevin, but there has to be some standard of unity. I mean, we just can't let everybody in. Do, there has to be some 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 sort of of belief system that we adhere to so that we can have unity, right? I mean, there has to be something that lines do have to be drawn. And and I know that those questions are being asked because those are the questions that I asked. When I went down this path of questioning, I came to believe that my former belief of unity being uniformity is incorrect, but I really didn't know what the solution actually was. And so in this episode we're going to talk about that. And I'm excited to throw out some different ideas to folks because I want to start by saying this. If you continuously get the wrong answer, you may be asking the wrong question. Yeah. And when you look at Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 20, this is the first passage that really opened up my eyes to this whole concept of how I need to reframe my way of understanding unity. You see that there's this man, this rich young ruler who comes up to Jesus. And he says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus just responds back as with a simple, you have to keep the commandments. <laughs> and, and he responds back and he says, okay, well, well, which commandments? And Jesus just goes ahead and he names a few. Don't do this. You know, don't commit adultery. Don't murder. And the rich young ruler, he says, well, great. I've, I've kept that list. I've, I've, I've not done any of those things. I've, I've not violated any of those laws. And so I guess I've kept my checklist. And then Jesus comes back and says, well, wait a minute. There's one thing you lack. You need to go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then you can come and follow me. And if you put yourself in the position of this rich young ruler, you're probably wondering, okay, where is this in the Bible? <laughs> what, what, <laughs> Jesus, where's your book, chapter, and verse? I don't see anything in the Bible that talks about how I have to sell everything I have and give it to the poor before I can follow you. Where, where's that in the Old Testament? That, that, there's no law that states that. Why, why, is, why are other people not having to do that? And what that passage taught me, well, it taught me many things, but as it pertains to unity, what it taught me is that, and, and just the idea of a checklist, is that we can't approach Christianity as a checklist. We can't approach it as saying, okay, these are these are all the exhaustive things you have to do. Here's your exhaustive list of every little thing that you have to do. And if you get all these things right, you're good. Because even when you think that you have all of those things checked off, there may be something even not on that list that, for lack of better words, God requires. And that thing that He requires ultimately is your heart. That's what God's looking for. He's looking for your heart. And that man's riches... That, that all those riches that was keeping him from following Jesus because that is what he worshiped those riches and and it was too much for him to have to give up so the point is is that there can there's no checklist and this whole idea of well here's your list of doctrinal issues we talked about this in the first episode of this of this topic about how that's impossible because everybody's going to have different lists those lists are constantly going to be changing and even if people have the same list they're going to have different views and understandings of each one of those doctrines on that list and so people aren't going to be seeing all these things alike and so that passage in and of itself began to help my it didn't like conclude anything for me but it started me down that path of thinking okay maybe I'm asking the wrong question. Instead of saying, well, what all do Christians have to agree upon in order to have unity? Maybe it's re-questioning. Maybe it's reframing. Maybe it's thinking, well, it's not about a list, but it's something about something much more than just a dry doctrinal list. Well, and that right there is is really the core of the whole issue because the issue isn't necessarily the doctrines in question. It's It's the methodology by which those doctrines have been ascertained to be absolutely true and what methodology and viewpoint and perspective, whatever that is, how has that elevated some of these doctrines to the point of being those thick lines in the sand that you just don't cross versus others that are just trivial matters and we can agree to disagree on. And as hardline as I was back in the day, there was very little that I would be willing to agree to disagree on. And I know that that was the case for you too, because our questions were giving us the answer that, that unity required 100% cognitive doctrinal agreement. Your mind and my mind had to be focused on the exact same things. And we had to arrive at the exact same conclusions about X, Y, and Z, whatever those things are. 
And it's because the entire framework in which we were approaching Christianity and the entire framework upon which our faith was built, that's the only conclusion it could be led to. That, that's the only way that it made sense. And one of the things that I want to make abundantly clear in this is that, and I'm, I think I can speak for you on this, brother. And if, and if I say something that you're like, oh, no, 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 not at all. Well, feel free to jump in and, and say that. But neither Kevin nor I are condemning anybody that still holds to that mindset that we held to. We think it's a dangerous attitude to have because it lends itself to sectarianism and division. It takes, to, to quote the words of one preacher, it takes uh, the sword of the spirit and uses it to tear the body asunder. It, it causes far more problems than it ever solves. So even with that being the case, I would want to caution anybody that holds to that position that we have to have perfect cognitive agreement in order to have unity. I don't think someone's soul could potentially be lost if they still love their neighbor as themselves. I think God's grace is big enough and wide enough that it can still cover somebody. But I, I do think we need to be careful because the Bible does warn about those who cause division. The Bible does warn about those who stir up discord and strife among brethren. So that is something that we need to be mindful of, but neither Kevin nor I are condemning anybody that held to those points or held to that viewpoint because we both held on to it very, very strongly. And we held on to it very strongly for many, many years. And we were honest in that. I mean, yeah. we, it wasn't, we didn't just wake up one morning and decide, you know what? I really want to be a jerk for Jesus. So who can I <laughs> rake over the coals now? And who can I preach into a devil's hell forever and ever today? Like, who am I going to attack? Huh? Let's see here. Let's go after the Baptists. No, we went after them last week. We'll go after the Methodists this week. That's not how we operated. You know, Kevin and I's desire, I'm just going to speak for myself. My desire, I wanted to be pleasing unto God. I wanted to pursue unity under God's terms. But the problem is, is that I wasn't pursuing unity under God's terms. I thought I was. I was pursuing unity under the terms that I had inherited that others had demanded that that were required in order to meet that. Yeah. And and the idea comes from from several different passages of scripture that when taken at face value and divorced from their context, it seems to paint unity in that uniformity picture. Yeah, going back, let me just reiterate what you said, because one of the things that I noticed when I started questioning is I would read material or listen to material and, and teachers who had changed, and they were very antagonistic towards those who were still in that mentality. And that's one thing I know that you don't ever want to do and I don't ever want to do, because we want to be that bridge for people who are questioning that they can they can listen to this podcast and it can be palatable for them that they're not going to get mocked they're not going to get made fun of and and if we ever do it it's definitely unintentional because we're probably just making fun of ourselves i try to always keep the focus on my own errors and my own shortcomings in the way that I used to understand scripture, because I'm certainly not putting myself uh, on a pedestal and neither is Lee. These are just things that we have found to be pragmatically true in, in our own experiences and in our own study. And we're wanting to give people a safe place to be able to explore those. But you're exactly right, Lee. There are people who 
uh, have legitimate questions. And some of those questions are questions that we had when we were studying through this topic. And I know one of my favorite go-to verses when I would preach on unity prior to my change was 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Hey, that settles it right there. The Bible says it and that settles it, Kevin. (laughs) Well, I tell you, I had several sermons on unity. And when I was working for the Gospel of Christ, I actually had a whole unity series. And it was, I think, eight, I want to say it was eight lessons on unity. And just about all of those lessons concluded with 1 Corinthians 1.10. And here Paul says that I, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, in the name of Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. And I would really emphasize the, the fact that Paul says there are to be no, no divisions among you, and that you be perfectly joined together in mind and thought. And in, in my mind, that left no room for doubt that unity demanded 100% cognitive doctrinal Uh, unity, uniformity, that we all have to believe the exact same thing because that's what 1 Corinthians 1.10 says. What I discovered in my study is that in the very same book or the very same letter, because 1 Corinthians, we call it a book, but it's a letter. It's a letter to the church at Corinth. We see that Paul is actually telling Christians that they are not to agree, uh, that that they don't have to see everything eye to eye and that they can agree to disagree. And this is this is really what blew my mind because as you look if you look at 1 Corinthians 1:10 and you come to the conclusion that that means we have to see everything eye to eye. The problem with that is either it means everything or it means some things. <laughs> you you can't have it both ways. And growing up the way that I did, I always explained this as well on the essential things. We have to be in unity, yeah. but not on the non-essential things. This goes back to the problem, though, that we discussed in the last episode. That is subjective. And if we are going to take 1 Corinthians 1.10 and say that this has no qualification, that it literally means all things, then it either means all things or it doesn't mean all things. And I don't know of a single Christian to date who believes that Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.10 literally and straightforward means that we have to agree on absolutely every biblical point before we can have unity. I've never met a single Christian who believes that. So we automatically understand 1 Corinthians 1.10 has to be qualified. Furthermore, when you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul's talking about those who believe that it's wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And the reason why they believed it was wrong is you had a lot of pagans who had converted, or former pagans, and they had converted to Christianity. Well, for them to eat meat sacrificed to an idol... They, they, in their minds, in their consciousness, they connected that with idol sacrifice. And so they, they didn't want to eat meat sacrificed to idols. They still believed it was wrong. So Paul wrote to them because apparently they had asked him some questions. And Paul says, look, there's nothing wrong with eating meat sacrificed to idols, but there are some of you who believe that, that it is wrong. And Paul, instead of saying, so you need to be corrected and you need to agree with everyone else, he doesn't, he doesn't say that at all. Instead, he turns his attention to the people who actually have the correct view and says, because of love, because of love, you tolerate your brethren who still believe it's wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Don't correct them. Don't sit there and tell them they're stupid. Don't sit there and tell them, oh, how dare you? No, no, no. You allow them. You tolerate them, not because of knowledge, 
Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, we all know that we have knowledge and knowledge puffs up, 1 Corinthians 8, 1. But it is love for the sake of love, Paul says, that we are to act. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul teaches that unity actually demands tolerance of diverse views. And that just blew my mind when I was paralleling 1 Corinthians 1.10 to 1 Corinthians 8, knowing that earlier Paul had said, you all have to believe the same thing. Yet 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says, no, you don't have to believe the same thing and you need to tolerate one another. Well, whenever you look at the entire body of Scripture, one of the things that you see over and over again thematically is that theme of unity that comes through. God wants His people to be at peace with one another. I mean, He wants us to be peaceable with everybody, but especially our brothers and our sisters in Christ. Unity is something God has always desired. So if you take a passage like 1 Corinthians 1.10 and your interpretation of that passage put into action leads to division, then you have the wrong interpretation. Because if if you you take that part of the Bible and you get something as simple as being unified and extending love and acceptance to your brethren, and you get that wrong and you put up walls of division, instead, God wants us to be unified, but I'm going to build this huge barrier because you don't think the same way I do about this or that or whatever else then it seems to me that the point has completely been missed and there's something else under the surface. But, you know, 1 Corinthians 1.10 was a favorite passage of mine as well because you've got to be of the same mind and of the same judgment. you got to be of the same mind and of the same judgment. Well, the same mind and the same judgment about what? Yeah. And yeah. and to me, that list is, is fairly short. And my understanding of that now is, is that being of the same mind and of the same judgment has to do with serving no other God but God recognizing Christ as the son of God and recognizing my brethren, my brothers and sisters who view God as their father and Christ as their savior, as being my brothers, whoever has God as their father and Jesus as their savior, they're a brother of mine. They're a sister of mine. And, and that's my understanding of that. And there's more nuance to it, but we don't want to get into that, well, you know, right yeah. now, but well, I was, I was going to say, Let's go back to the context of First Corinthians one because it does mean something, and yeah. and that's something that that I always want to make sure our audience knows too is that sometimes we deconstruct passages, and and we want to make sure we're not just deconstructing, but we're letting people know well these passages still they still do mean something obviously. So what does Paul mean? What what is he talking about there? And so when you look at First Corinthians chapter one, there's a problem happening. And that problem is there are some Christians who are following uh, Paul. They, 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 they're claiming that they're disciples of Paul. Others claim that they're disciples of Peter. Some are claiming they're disciples of Apollos. And so you have all these Christians here at this one little church, and they're divided because they can't agree on who they're supposed to be following. That, that's the whole context. Do we follow Peter? Do we follow Paul? Do we follow Apollos? Do we follow Jesus? Who do we follow? And and that's why Paul says, I'm so disheartened because I hear there's all there's there's this division among you. And and Paul even says, I'm glad I didn't baptize more of you there because there are already some of you who think that you're my disciple. But here is the truth. All of you are the disciples of only one, and that's Jesus Christ. And if you can't be unified on that, then, then there can't be true Christian unity. Christian unity depends upon the fact 
within the context of 1 Corinthians 1, that everyone is agreed that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. We're not disciples of our preachers. We're not disciples of, of anybody else ultimately. But we are disciples of Jesus the Christ. He is our Messiah. He is our Savior. He is the one we are trying to follow and imitate. So within context of 1 Corinthians 1.10, the whole point there of being unified and speaking the same thing is the fact that we all speak the way Jesus spoke, that we are all in agreement that Jesus is our leader, that he that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. That's the context. Now, I'm not saying that there's not more application that can be had from that, but if we're going to be true to the immediate context of 1 Corinthians 1.10, the division that was taking place was over who we're supposed to be following who or who they were supposed to be following, and Paul clears it up and says, no, you don't follow me, you don't follow anybody else, you follow Jesus Christ. Well, and I think that even a broader application, I'm, we're, we're, let's just keep beating that horse because this is interesting. I, I think even a broader application is, is what if it's not people? Because so many of our divisions now, they don't really follow people as much as they follow ideas. Yeah. So like a lot of the divisions within the churches of Christ, like there was the big division back in the late 1800s over instrumental music. So you had the division that took place over instrumental music, and it wasn't that one was following Paul or, or Cephas or, or whoever else. Some were following one concept and one reading of Scripture while the others were following another reading of Scripture. You fast forward a little while later, you've got G.C. Brewer you know, bringing the, the multiple cups into the worship assembly. And then you have the division over that between the cup and the, you know, the other churches that use the individual cups in their communion. And then within the one cup group of which, you know, I was a part of for so long, you had division over whether Sunday school was acceptable. And then you had division over whether there were some small churches and it was a, a fragment of them who were divided over whether or not the communion should be observed in an upper room. There were others who divided over whether, you know, and we may have mentioned this in marriage, divorce and remarriage, whether there was any exception at all for divorce. There was, there have been divisions over views of eschatology. You know, we talked to, you know, Daniel Rogers about that. It's, there are all these divisions that have taken place, but they weren't after people as much as they were after different concepts. And these are all people who still affirm Christ as their Savior. These are people who believe in the inspiration of the Scriptures. These are people who believe in the work of the Holy Spirit and the reconciliation of the soul of man. These are people who believe in God the Father who is above all and through all and in you all. And yet divisions are still taking place, not because certain people are being followed, but because certain concepts are being followed. And then even if we take it and we spread that out a little bit further across denominational lines, you have divisions that have taken place, you know, within, and I'm no expert on Baptist history by any stretch, but you have divisions within the Baptist church over, you know, four point Calvinism or five point Calvinism. You have, you know, missionary Baptists, you have primitive Baptists, you have divisions over free will or not. So a lot of the divisions that take place now, certainly there are different people who are charismatic, who have a lot of charisma and a lot of magnetism in and of themselves, just as a part of their personality that can lead people to follow them and how they think. But primarily, a lot of the divisions that happen now in Protestantism, especially, it has to do over conceptual lines rather than individuals. So even then, the application can still be had. You know, at what point is that delineation? And Paul brings it back to Jesus. We are followers of Jesus. And if we are followers of Jesus, then we are united in him. Yeah, there is a video. In fact, I'm going to send it to you so you can attach it to the podcast link. So underneath it, people can click to click on it to watch it, especially if you're from the Churches of Christ 
uh, either current or if you're currently a member of the Church of Christ or you have been, I think that this is something that that you you'll be really able to to resonate with. Uh, Rick Ashley he does a sermon called "The Chairs of the Restoration Movement Within the Churches of Christ," and he takes a different chair and just talks about how many divisions there's been just within the Churches of Christ, as you just did. And it's just such a powerful illustration because that is really at, at the core of what. 1 Corinthians 1.10 is trying to, to keep us from doing, is dividing. And 1 Corinthians 1.10 has actually been used, or I used it at least, as a verse to justify division. I, all these passages that talk about unity in the Bible, and there's a lot of them, I actually use those to justify my division because I believe that I was keeping unity by keeping doctrinal uniformity, which meant that if you didn't agree with me in my very, very, very small group, you could not be a part of us. You could not have fellowship. And so that was the way that we actually were able to keep division alive is by appealing to these verses. And so the the video that Rick Ashley does is, is really good. But there there's another a passage, too, that I used to use a lot. And seriously, I, I was pulling from some of my old sermons when I was going through this because <laughs> I have a lot of old material, so I'm not attacking anybody but myself tonight. But Amos 3.3, how can two walk together unless they be agreed, brother? Amen, Captain? brother. Amen. Uh, Amos 3.3 says that we cannot walk together unless we are agreed. And this passage is a little bit easier to, well, I want to say a little bit easier because I think 1 Corinthians 1.10 within context is, is uh, pretty easy to understand. Uh, but when you look at Amos 3.3, this is just a gross misunderstanding of the actual context in linguistics because the Hebrew word that is translated as agreed actually means to appoint or make an appointment. So within context, the agreement or the appointment actually precedes the walking together as the cause precedes the effect. This is actually about an agreement to walk together, not walking together in an agreement. And so the actual translation of this verse is how can two walk together unless they have first agreed to do so. This isn't even saying that two can't walk together unless they agree. That's not even what Amos 3.3 is saying. So the linguistics there pretty much clears that up because the point is that two have to first agree to walk together before they can walk together. It's not saying that you have to agree on everything before you can walk together. You just simply have to be willing to agree to walk together in order to do so. Well, and I think this podcast is an excellent illustration of that verse at work within its context, because when we first started this podcast, and, and it's funny because you have gone through an evolution of faith in your life. I have gone through an evolution of faith in my life. And while our Venn diagrams of you know where we agree and disagree are overlapping a little more than they did before, when we first started this podcast, there were still some positions that I held that were in stark contrast with yours. And you know, there were, there were many things that you and I disagreed on. And there are still a few that you and I, we we was like, no, I see it this way. You see it that way, but we have agreed that we are walking together. We have agreed that we recognize the spirit of Christ within one another. You are a faithful brother in Christ. I am a faithful brother in Christ. We recognize that in one another and we are walking together because we have agreed to do so. That's really what Amos is getting at. Yeah. Yep, exactly. And, and, and you know, when you just start looking at these verses in context, I mean, I was the king of cherry-picking passages, which is funny 
uh, not really funny in a ha-ha kind of way, but funny more in, in an ironic way because I used to condemn other people for doing the very thing that I was guilty <laughs> of doing and, yeah. and uh, because it, it served my purpose. And when verses serve our purpose, our presupposed purpose, we don't really dig into those verses. And it, we already have a presupposition in mind and we have a verse that seems like it proves our point. We're not going to stand there and try to uh, dig in deeper just to make sure most, most of the time. I mean, that's just human nature to say, Hey, I already believe this. Hey, I found four or five verses that, that seem to teach this. And so I'm going to now just cherry pick these verses and, and put a sermon together and, and convincingly teach it because I'm not sitting there going to challenge my presupposition because once again, it's a presupposition. We rarely challenge our presuppositions. And so that that's another passage that um, I used. And I know that you and I both have talked about that. That's one that you used to. Uh, several of these other passages, pretty similar, Acts 2.42, Philippians 2.2. They, they speak of having the same mind. They speak of having the same judgment. All, all of that is, is in, ref, you know, in reference to the same thing. And so ultimately, there's no actual Bible verses that teach we are to see everything alike. And the passages that talk about striving for unity and the passages we talked about earlier in 1 Corinthians 8 actually teach and and demonstrate the fact that part of unity is being able to agree to disagree. That that's inherent in the idea of unity, not in opposition to it. Well, and that's the only way it can work because one of the things that we discussed in that previous episode, and it's a point that I think we made crystal clear, is that there is no possible way that any two people are going to absolutely agree in lockstep on everything. Yeah. Eventually, down the road, you can sit there and you can go down the list of everything. If there were a way you could make a list of everything and then go down that list, eventually you are going to come to a point that you disagree with someone else on. Yeah. It is an inevitability. And we're we're a diverse people. I mean, there's seven and a half billion people in the world. And no two people are exactly alike in this world. And that, to me, is a testament to the greatness and the beauty of God's design because it would be a, a terribly boring place if everyone were like me. It would be a really boring place if everyone were like you or like Kim or like Bethany or like you know anyone else. So that diversity is a good thing because we learn from each other. We we teach each other lessons. We have things that that we can share and that we can use to help other people grow. And if we're all alike, then there really is no growth. And if we all hold to the same opinions and the same ideas, there's no growth there either. Well, we see we see in passages like Ephesians 4, Philippians 127, Romans 14:19, Romans 14:4 that say we should constantly be working together and and be unified. Well, if we already agree on everything, that's not going to be a struggle. There, there's going to be no reason to strive because we already see everything alike. The striving is not to make sure that you agree with one another. The striving is to continue to be unified despite not seeing everything the same way. And this was such an epiphany to me because for, forever I had believed that all these passages were saying you have to believe the same thing, you have to believe the same thing. And it never dawned on me that the whole point of these passages is saying, look, when you're going to be within a community of believers, there's number one, going to be disagreement. And number two, despite that disagreement, you need to learn to love and tolerate one another. 
I don't know about you, but if I am in a group of people who are always just saying, yes, Kevin, yes, Kevin, and agree with me, that's not difficult. That's not hard. There's no struggle. There's no love or patience that I need to have because everybody's agreeing with me. I've surrounded myself with a bunch of yes men. And the the, the difficulty comes when I have surrounded myself with a bunch of Christians and we all have different ideas, yet we're still able to work together despite those differences because we're unified in what really matters. And that's ultimately in the fact that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Jesus is the Messiah. We are disciples of Jesus. Uh, Another passage in Luke 9 is when John saw someone driving out demons. He was trying to exercise demons. There was just a random guy. We don't really know who the guy was. But he was trying to uh, drive out demons in the name of Jesus. And John sees this guy and he's like, wait a minute. This guy's not walking with us, Jesus. He's not part of our church. He's not part of our denomination. He's not part of our group. I mean, if he was part of our group, he would be walking with us. And this is what he said. He said, Jesus, Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. And this is what Jesus said. He said, good job. That's right. You show him who's boss. You just lay it down on him, man. Drop the hammer. Yes. No, wait, that's not what he said. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's what we would have said. That, that's what, that's what, that's what uh, I would have wanted Jesus to say, you know, seven or eight years ago. Uh, but that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, do not stop him for whoever is not against you is for you. Whoever's not against us is with us. And that's in Luke 9, 49 through 50. It's so easy to condemn other churches or even just other Christians, even within our own denomination or church group, maybe because they don't worship the way we do or or because they hold to different beliefs on just uh, plurality of various topics. But that is why the Bible says we need to work together because our flesh says divide. Our flesh says believe what I believe. Love as we see in 1 Corinthians 8, says, wait a minute, we all have knowledge. I mean, everybody's got knowledge. Yeah. But if we all bring our knowledge to the table and we try to get everybody to see things the way I see it, that's just never going to happen. Instead, utilize love. You, you have to start with love and you have to end with love. And that's how you make your decisions. And when you do that, sometimes that means giving up a freedom in Christ because someone else has a misunderstanding. It doesn't mean you go and you correct them and tell them how dumb they are for having a weak conscience. It means you say, well, you know what? Because this brother believes this right now, for the sake of unity, out of love, not out of knowledge, I'm going to lead with love. And I'm going to still have unity with my brother despite this. But with all of this said, Lee, there's still question marks and, and there are still those questions that were in my mind, and I'm sure people who are listening to this right now go, okay, Kevin and Lee, all that sounds great. I agree uh, with the fact that we don't have to agree on everything, okay? I get it. I get it. But, and by the way, let me just say this one more time, even those who believe that you have to see everything alike don't even believe you have to see everything alike. There's still are very, uh, they, they're, there's a lot of, they're very arbitrarily in how they pick and choose what they have to unite on and what they don't have to unite on. Because even I was, and even you yeah. were. I mean, there's still those yeah. things we pick and choose of, oh, well, not everything. So there's no Christian who actually believes you have to view everything the same way. So really, there's no difference in what we're saying and what somebody else is saying. The difference is within the spectrum 
of how we're understanding unity, within the spectrum of how we're saying that tolerance and fellowship should be extended. And that's the big difference here. And so if someone's listening at home right now, or they're driving in their car and they're thinking to themselves, okay, this all sounds like it makes sense. And I understand that not everybody's always going to agree, but aren't there some things besides just the fact that Jesus is Lord we need to agree on? I mean, aren't there, aren't there some things? How, how, how do we begin to even set boundaries for having a spectrum to begin with unless there are specific issues? And this is the question that I used to ask myself all the time. And the answer is that we have to view unity and fellowship as relational, not transactional. And when, yeah. we, do, when we do that, it completely changes the game. In fact, uh, I dare say that since I have understood grace, ever since I've, and I'm still understanding it, so I don't mean to imply I've, I've got you know a corner on grace, but when I really started understanding grace and just how huge that concept is, it, it allowed me to actually not only hold myself more accountable, but other people more accountable. And, 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 and I really started seeing more transformation in others. I saw it in myself because it wasn't about, oh, you don't believe this. You're not welcome here. It's more, well, hey, you see this and I see this. Let's, let's try to work together to see how we can just have transformed lives. And so let's kind of engage that a little bit and dig into that whole idea of, what does it look like? You know, if, if let's say a, an elder or a shepherd is listening to this for the, for the first time that, that they've thought about the idea of unity not being uniformity, and they ask, but aren't there still things we need to be unified on? How would well, you respond to that? Well, I think that I'm really glad that you phrased it the way that you did, because it calls to mind some really good conversations I've had with a very, very dear friend who I love immensely. And I know they're listening to this, so... One of the things that as as I have gone through this process of understanding and really appreciating grace more and more and more, and like like you, man, I've barely scratched the surface of it because it's such a huge concept. They have grown in their appreciation of it as well. But one of the things they've said is, is you know, this approach, this relational approach you're taking to scripture, it kind of worries me because it's almost like there are no lines. Like anything goes. It's like you're you're saying anything goes. It seems like that that's the the end result of this relational, theological, Christocentric approach to scripture instead of a blueprint, rules-based list of essentials approach to to Christianity. You know, it, it's it's way easier to make that list and follow it than it is to move relationally. It's way it's easier in some ways, but it's also much more difficult in, in other ways. You have to deny yourself on a whole new level whenever you view things through a relational lens. So to someone who would say, well, isn't there a list or maybe not a list, maybe that's the wrong word. Where is that line? Like, yeah. what is that line? Like if there's someone that was asking me that question, it's, I was focused on answering that question. Well, the line is right here. And whenever you're in relationship versus pursuing that list of rules, it's not as much about knowing exactly where that line is. You intrinsically know when that line is crossed. It's not a matter of knowing and extrapolating from the text. Well, this is where the line is and I don't need to cross it. It's a determination and a utilization of wisdom that allows you to ascertain where that line lies. Yeah. And 
one of the issues is, is that you and I both believe that it was better to draw too many lines than not enough. It was, it was the idea of our Christianity was predicated on precision obedience, not just obedience, but precision obedience. And in order to be obedient, I need to be precise in how I obey. Mm -hmm. I need to know exactly what it is that Jesus has said or that God has demanded of me in order to follow him and to make me happy. And in order to do that and to be precise, I need to be as clear and as pinpoint accurate as I can. So to do that, I'm going to draw line after line after line, after line, even if they are lines that really God didn't draw, I'm still going to draw those lines. And then I'm going to use the scriptures in such a way to prove that God drew those lines. But then I'm confronted with what James said in James two and 13. And I'm going to paraphrase what he said. This has become my favorite passage in scripture. And it's that there is no mercy in judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And what I have learned from that passage is it's better to err on the side of mercy than it is to draw a bunch of lines in the sand. I need to be willing to extend mercy to others because if being a Christian means that I'm to be Christ-like by the very definition of the word, who's more merciful than Jesus himself? And if I'm to be more like Jesus, I need to be more merciful. I need to be merciful and extend grace to my brothers and sisters who don't see things the same way I do. They don't believe the same thing that I do about XYZ doctrine. Maybe they have a different viewpoint on baptism than I do. Maybe they have a different viewpoint on the communion than I do. Maybe they have a different viewpoint on women's roles than I do. I still need to be willing to extend mercy to them and grace to them because it seems to me when you take the entirety of scripture and you look at it, you see God's grace at work and you see the importance of extending mercy rather than judgment to others. So changing a mindset towards grace and away from judgment is really the first step. And man, that can be a really hard step to take for a lot of people. I know it was for me. Yeah, well, you you have in my in my mind, you you have these two distinct philosophies on how to draw lines. And as you pointed out, you used to believe it. I used to believe it. It's better to draw too many lines than not enough. That's what I used to believe. I believe that it was the safe route to go because I, the last thing I wanted to do is get before the Lord and and find out I didn't draw enough lines. Oh no, oh no, I tolerated something I wasn't supposed to tolerate. I'm supposed to be a defender of the truth. I was supposed to be one of the of, of the watchers. I was supposed to be out defending the faith and a warrior and a soldier for God. So I, I would always rather shoot too much than not enough. I would rather have too many casualties than let the enemy somehow survive. And that was really my mindset. It was this war, fight-like, just aggressive, judgmental, dogmatic, condemning mindset. And it's just like with you, with James 2.13, it it changed me. Not just that verse that kind of summarizes it, but the fact that mercy triumphs uh, over judgment and that we are to give more mercy than we are judgment. So that really just flipped a switch because now the last thing I want to do is get before the Lord and go, oh man, like Kevin, all these people were, were, were my children, and, and you could have had so much 
more community and fellowship, but you were just drawing lines with people left and right. And yeah, there were a few times, maybe you were a little more tolerant than you should have been, but I would much rather be on that side of the equation than the other side. And and that's something people just have to come to the realization. And that's a choice they make. And you and I were talking about this before, uh, we were talking about this before we started recording that Every church, if you, if you attend a church, and I'm sure you do if you're listening to this, in some form or fashion, whether it's a home church, whether it's a communal church, whether it's an institutional church, you have Christians you fellowship with. I mean, there are brothers and sisters in Christ that, that you meet with regularly, you fellowship, you hang out, you eat with on a regular basis. No matter what church you go to, no matter how quote-unquote conservative and quote-unquote liberal, and I'm doing air quotes, but you can't see them because this is just being recorded. But the fact of the matter is liberal and conservative are loaded terms, but you get my point. No matter how liberal, quote unquote, or conservative, quote unquote, you may be or what church you go to, there is a spectrum of acceptance of things that you believe are wrong. Yeah. And and and, and, and I, I, there's not a church I haven't been to where people tolerated gossip. There wasn't a church that I went to where people tolerated uh, husbands working more than they should or wives working more than they should and not being a good spouse because they're married to their work. There, there's there's not a church I haven't been to where I, where I didn't know these things existed, but churches tolerate them. They allow them because it's on the spectrum. And so every church has what they are really tolerating. Even if you were to ask them point blank, hey, do you believe it's okay to gossip? Well, no, I don't believe it's okay to gossip. Well, you know, there's some members at your church who are gossiping. Well, yeah, we know, but that's just kind of how they are. You know, we may excuse it. We may justify it even. Even if we come out and say it's wrong, are we really doing anything about it? And and to me, that's that's where I've noticed that we all give mercy to some people. There's a spectrum in which we all give mercy to people we fellowship with and, and worship with. And my my belief is we need to make that uh, spectrum a lot more broad than it currently is in, in, in most places, that we need to make sure that that spectrum is being enlarged. And in addition to all of that stuff, when we reduce Christianity to nothing more than a list of essentials, we're not allowing Christians the opportunity to grow. Second Peter 3.18 talks about how we're to grow, and Hebrews 5.12-14 talks about how some Christians are going to be on milk, spiritually speaking, and other Christians are going to be on meat. And you don't you don't treat a 45-year-old educated man the way that you would a 24-year-old person who who has just found out about Christ. And so that's why there's not this objective list that God gives us in the Bible. Even though I believe objective truth exists, we are very much fallible individuals trying to to, to understand what that objective truth is. And even when we believe that we found objective truth, each person is going to be on a different level and we have to handle them differently. And so here's this word everybody hates, but it's the reality. That is a lot of this is going to be subjective. A lot of this yeah. is going to be a, because you're dealing with relationships. You're yep. dealing with, you know, like, for example, me and Bethany, we've been married now. We celebrated our seventh uh, yesterday, seven, Congratulations, seven years, seven years man. Man, lucky number seven. And it's, you know, we have, I think a fantastic relationship. I love her. She loves me. We work together. We own a business together. We're friends. We love Disney. We love to go out and do things together. And I think we have a fantastic relationship, but if you compare our relationship now to where it's going to be when we're married for 40 years, I hope that when we're married 40 years, our relationship's even going to be better. And, and it's, you're not going to be able to compare it 
to, to now. But that doesn't mean it's not good where it's at and that we're constantly growing. And so a lot of this is going to be so subjective. But something else I want to bring up is that I used to go to Matthew 18, 2 Thessalonians 3, and 1 Corinthians 5. Those were my main texts that talk about what we would call disfellowship. Some churches call it excommunication. The idea is that there are some Christians, if they continue to persist in sin, and you have talked to them, and you've tried to explain to them what they're doing is wrong, and, and they still aren't willing to change. They're still not willing to ask for forgiveness. They're still not willing to transform their lives to be more like Christ. Then eventually, they need to be cut off, not in an ugly way. Even Second Thessalonians three fourteen says you don't treat them as an enemy, but you admonish them as a brother. So even then, even once you do that, you're still to treat them kindly. But when you look at all those passages... What you notice is there's just not a whole lot there. Matthew 18 doesn't even give us any subject uh, as far as what's under consideration. It just simply says if you got a problem with a brother in Christ, you're to go to that brother. And once you go to that brother, if they don't change, then you're to you're to bring somebody else with you. And if they don't change after you bring somebody with you, two or three more with you, then you're to bring it before the whole assembly. You're to let everybody know, make it public. And even then, if that person doesn't change, then at that point, you are to distance yourself from that individual. Once again, don't treat them as an enemy, but admonish them as a brother, even at that point. Well, that doesn't say on what issues. It gives you the, the formula of how you're to handle it, but it doesn't say on this issue, do this. It just says if you have a problem with, with your brother. Well, what if you have a problem with your brother and he's not the wrong that, the one that's wrong, but you're the one that's wrong? <laughs> it doesn't talk yeah. about that. And then you get into 1 Corinthians 5, and in that particular context, what hap- what, what's, what's going on there is a man is sleeping, having sex with his, with his father's wife. Now, a lot of people think that this is probably his stepmother. I'm not too certain of that. I think it could be his actual biological mother, or at least the mother that raised him. And the reason why is because Paul starts out by talking about these types of things are not even named among the Gentiles. And that was just a euphemism of saying that this, whatever's happening here is really bad. Even the pagans aren't doing this kind of stuff. Well, we know the pagans were having sex left and right. And so I don't think this is just a matter of somebody having sex. I think this is a matter of something that is a a gross immoral sin. And so whether this is his biological mother he's shacking up with, or whether it's his stepmother who raised him. Either way, whatever is taking place here is not just a common sin. This is not just a common sin in general. This isn't even named among the Gentiles. This is so bad, even the pagan Gentiles don't do this kind of stuff. And yeah. so whatever's happening there, it's a big mag- it's it's of massive magnitude. And then you come to 2 Thessalonians 3, and there you pretty much the 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 emphasis when you read first and second Thessalonians is on not working. Because they believed Jesus was about to return, so a lot of them had quit their jobs, and they weren't obeying Paul, and they were just waiting on Jesus. And Paul just talks about if people aren't obeying our word in this epistle, you know, you need to to admonish them as a brother. Don't count them as an enemy, but you need to withdraw from them and distance yourself from them. Once again, that's vague. I mean, there's there's really not a lot of specifics there. So people have kind of turned that into anything. So if you want to get specific, people try to turn to list. They try to go to 1 Corinthians 6 or Romans 1. But guess what's listed there? Gossip is listed there. So, you know, let's 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 get real with this kind of stuff. These are the congregations people aren't engaging in. They're not they're not being real with this kind of stuff because we all are on a spectrum. And so I know I'm kind of getting to preaching now, but the point that I want people to understand is if we're going to be honest, let's get honest. Let's get honest. Let's quit just saying, well, here's three or four lists, and then we're only emphasizing 
emphasizing maybe two or three of those things. So why are we being so tolerant uh, uh, sins of the tongue, but sins of the flesh? We're just what we're saying. No, no, no. Those things we're zero tolerance, zero tolerance. And, you know, it's so, so when we consider all of these different things, the, the point that I really try to emphasize with folks is that you, you brought this up and I talked about this in my book, the kind of the, the really four points and the four, the four thoughts that I have on this is I would rather be uh, too merciful than too judgmental. And number two, I, I would rather try to be as consistent as possible with how we're drawing our lines because most people, as I've been talking about, Let's be honest. Let's be honest. We're inconsistent on how we pick and choose the issues over which to divide. We do. We, we were very inconsistent on that. And Jesus has a lot to say about that in Matthew 7, 1 through 5 and 1 Timothy 5, 21. So are you dealing with the person who's cheated on their wife in the same way that you're dealing with the person who gossiped in your quote unquote prayer group on Tuesday morning? You know, are you are you treating them the same way? And if not, then you need to to reevaluate things, and I need to reevaluate things to make sure I'm being consistent and not hypocritical. Uh, number three, I talked about taking the uh, proper biblical protocol just a moment ago from Matthew chapter 18, and most people don't do this. They don't go through the proper biblical, and I say most people. Most people I have had experience with don't do this. They don't go through the proper biblical channels on how to deal with someone that we believe is in sin. Most churches that I have worked with or have attended, when they withdraw from somebody, that person has already withdrawn from that church long before they got their little letter in the mail saying, you're no longer a member here because you're living in sin. They've already withdrawn from that congregation. So when when we look at all these things, the point of unity, the point of withdrawing fellowship and all of these different things if you're withdrawing fellowship from somebody and it's not affecting them, it's not hurting them, you've kind of missed the point of fellowship to begin with. Because yeah. most people who are being withdrawn from, they're thankful. They're like, well, thank goodness. I'm glad that church is going to leave me alone. You know, I left there like five years ago and I'm just now getting a letter from them saying that I'm no longer considered a member because I haven't been faithful in my attendance or whatever it might be. But the point is we need to go through the proper channels. And number four the, the thing I was guilty of is condemning the eternal fate of others when we draw lines. And we were talking about this before we aired too, because I've really changed on this where I believe boundaries need to be set. I do. And whether whether we like it or not, we all set boundaries for our own convictions. We do. And, you know, we have, I don't, I don't want to necessarily use the word luxury, but that's what it is today in 2021. We have the luxury because there's so many different churches where, there may be ways that that I can worship better with someone else because I realize that going to some to another church may be too toxic for me. It may be too toxic for for my children or for my spouse or or whatever. And so I have to set boundaries. But ultimately, I believe we need to allow God to deal with the final fate of each individual and show love and admonishment to those we believe are in sin, not condemnation. And so even those, which by the way, there are people who I don't associate anymore. I've gone to talk to them and I've brought others with me. I've got, tried to go through the proper channels. And, and and ultimately, I told them, I said, look, you know, you're not willing to change. You're not willing to transform on this. And I believe this is something to me and my conviction that is important. And I believe your behavior is toxic. I've tried to talk to you about this. We've tried to work through this. You're not willing to work with this. And so I, I'm going to have to draw a line. And others are in agreement with that. And so 
you know, that has happened since I have found grace. That still has happened. So people say, oh, Kevin, he's just a big grace guy, man. I bet he don't try to correct anybody anymore. You know, he just tolerates everything. I've probably have, have talked to people more about their specific sin and have had people talk to me about my specific sins more so pri- uh, after finding grace than I did prior because it allows true vulnerability. It allows for us to just be honest with one another instead of just this dry, robotic communication that so many churches have. So, all right, I'm going to get off my soapbox now because I've been talking for like 10 minutes. Come now while we stand and sing. <laughs> Man, well, the thing is, is if, if I were to interject anything, I think what you said about consistency is really important. And we need to make sure because whenever you draw too many lines, you know, we talked about James 2.13 and the idea of being merciful and letting that rule the day rather than judgmentalism. And really what you said about being inconsistent with how we draw lines, brother, that's, that's spot on, but that consistency with how we draw lines needs to come from scripture. And we don't really need to draw any lines that God himself hasn't drawn. And that doesn't mean, and I really appreciate what you said about conviction. That doesn't mean that you can't have convictions because I still have convictions. There are still convictions that I had before I began this journey into and through grace that I still have now. And there are some convictions that I'm sure that I will probably let go of. And there are new convictions that I will, you know, hold on to as I continue to study and as I continue to grow and as I continue to learn. But one thing that I agree with completely is that last point you make, and that's the condemnation of the eternal fate of those who don't see things the same way I do. You know, it, it used to be so easy for me to say, well, because they use instrumental music in their church service, well, then they must be a bunch of heathens bound for a devil's hell because they view things, you know, they view this differently than I do, or they have a different conviction about this. Well, they just don't love God and they just don't love what God says. And we, we did a whole episode on how to treat others you disagree with. And, you know, I mean, it's probably my favorite one we've ever done, but that has to change whenever you err on the side of mercy. You know, my personal preference, and we'll we'll do a whole episode dedicated to instruments at some point, I'm sure. But my personal conviction is I have a strong preference for a cappella, just to use that as an example. It's it's more participatory, you know, having been in, you know, the church band before in the past as a drummer. You know, I appreciate the congregational a cappella singing far more than I do what a praise team can do. But where the change has come in is I'm I'm convicted that that's the best way for me to worship and approach the throne of God. But I'm not going to condemn someone that's like a cappella. I don't want any part of that. Let's have, you know, a praise team up there on the stage. Let's have the, you know, let's get the instruments out there. I'm not going to condemn someone because they approach the throne of God in a tangential way that I do, because that's a line God hasn't drawn. And we'll get into that whenever we go into instrumental music at some point. And I feel like I'm kind of opening up a can of worms right now at the very end of this episode. But, (laughs) but whenever we say, Oh no, you know, that's, that's a line that God has drawn in scriptures. Well, whenever you really get into the context of, of Ephesians 519 and Colossians 316, no, it's really not. And, and we'll do that in a, in a, in a future episode. But, but the point is, is that you can have convictions and you can draw lines based on those convictions. 
And if someone is in sin, whether it's due to divisiveness or whether it's due to a sin that causes damage to themselves or their reputation or the reputation of the church within the community, whatever the case may be, if one takes the appropriate protocol and goes to them, there's still a way that that can be done in love. But so often we don't do it that way. So often, and I'm using a general we, I don't mean you and I, but I know we definitely did that before. But many times whenever discipline is meted out, it's not done in a loving way. It's not done in a Christ-like way. It's not done with a humble attitude, you know, taking heed lest we ourselves, you know, hey, take heed lest you fall. I mean, you know, you have a chance to be just as guilty of this as anybody else. You know, Paul said that in Galatians. You got to be careful whenever you do this and make sure you're doing the right thing the right way with the right attitude. Because if you don't have the right attitude or the right heart and it's like, oh, you just messed up. I'm, I'm God's self-appointed referee. I'm wearing my striped shirt and I've got my whistle and I'm going to blow it and throw a flag on you. I'm going to write you a ticket because you did this or that or whatever else. That's not what it's about. We're not here to police each other. We're here to build one another up. We're here to hold one another's hand. Your job, Kevin, is to help me navigate these waters of faith and life and where you see me maybe treading into a dangerous place is to come to me and to have a discussion about that. Whenever I see, hey, Kevin, you know, man, maybe this isn't the right way you need to go about this. Let's have a discussion. Let's talk about this. Let's get together over coffee and talk through it and figure it out. That's what it's about. Our mission is to help one another. And when we're so busy wielding a baton, a proverbial baton, and we're trying to beat each other over the head whenever we see someone mess up, or we're pointing fingers of condemnation at one another because someone has a different conviction about some ancillary item than what I do, we've missed the entire point. We're becoming sectarian at that point, and we're driving ourselves further away from unity, and we're driving wedges of division instead. Yep. And, that's not, and that's not what it's all about. Whenever we can err on the side of mercy, when we can be consistent, whenever we can follow the biblical protocol in bringing about change, and whenever we can let go of our need to condemn people that think differently than we do, then we are beginning to walk on that path that leads towards true biblical unity as God would have his people pursue. Yeah, and and I want to just... You know, amen to everything you just said. Um, and I'm sure now people are wanting to talk about instrumental music, but. <laughs> which, yeah, sorry, y'all. That's happening which, later. Which, by the way, I, I had a debate on instrumental music with a Pente- Pentecostal preacher on why I believed it was wrong in 2012. And of course, I changed my view and I've, I've written extensively about why. So we'll probably get into some of those things later. But. Getting back to this whole idea of, of how do you draw lines and all those, I, I don't think how do you draw a line is a proper question. In the framework of how I understand unity now, I don't even think that that's a question that should exist. And so what I try yeah. to do is, is I look at a narrative arc. I look at what I call the character of the Bible. And I'm going to be talking about this a lot in my new book, Blinded by the Bible, because there are so many verses that we can cherry pick and create doctrines. I mean, that's kind of what Christians have done since the conception of Christianity. And that's what the Jews did with the Old Testament is that's why there was always these different rabbis and schools of thought and throughout the, you know, the the Jews and in Israel. And then that's why today within Christendom, since it's uh, conception in the first century, while there's so many different denominations, because everybody does that. So how are we to kind of parse through that? I don't think there's really an answer other than by saying, well, yeah, that's always going to exist. People are always going to come to different conclusions. But what matters the most? 
What should yeah. my focus be on? And I just want to read these verses for you. I very rarely believe this is an effective way to do things, but I, I just want to read just a handful of these verses because when I read these, ask yourself, hmm, does there seem to be maybe some some things that are common with the Old and New Testament that we constantly see being a point of emphasis? So let, let's start with probably one everyone knows. Man's come, man comes up to Jesus. What's the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Okay, then we come to passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the famous love chapter. The very end, Paul concludes, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. When you go to the Old Testament, Let's summarize what God's really after. Uh, he he's shown thee, you know, he's shown shown thee. <laughs> I'm quoting from old King James. He has shown <laughs> you what is good and and what God requires to to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. So we're dealing with justice and by the way we're not talking about retributive justice, we're talking about restorative justice, making sure that the orphan and the widow are taken care of, making sure that people are seen equally. Uh, unlike the church's failure for basically the beginning of America <laughs> and yeah. and the idea of making sure we see everybody equal to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. That's what God, that that's, that's what we see in Micah. This is what God wants of us. When we come to other passages like Matthew 23, 23, Jesus was so upset at the scribes and Pharisees. Why? He said, you do all these ritualistic things and that's great because those ritualistic things can ultimately help bring you closer to God. But here's the problem. You've you've omitted and you've left undone the things that really matter, the things that all of those really proceed from. And that is judgment, uh, justice, mercy and faith. Those those things you've left undone. You, you, you haven't been focusing on those things. We come to first Peter, chapter four, verse eight, where Peter says, above all. Above all, what's what, what do you want to say when you want to really emphasize something? Above all, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. You come to Galatians chapter 5. Paul says, For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision or uncircumcision avails anything but faith that works in love, loving one another. And you, you just see this, Colossians 3.14, Above all, put on love, which is the bond of perfectness. This there's so many different verses that talk about this. And here is where I conclude with the idea of unity. This is where I believe the focus should be on. First Peter chapter three, verse eight says that we are to have a unity of mind in sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. That is where I believe if you want to line, let's start with that and work on that and go from there. I think that's spot on, man. That's, that is spot on because whenever you're humble, you're willing to admit where you've been wrong and that can be really hard. It can be extremely hard to do. So whenever you have sympathy, whenever you have love, whenever you have compassion, those other things and those other differences, they fade away, they melt into the background and you can really do some good. You know, and through all this, I can't help but imagine one of the things that I keep kind of circling back to that this thought keeps popping into my head as we've had this discussion tonight is what if the church, what if Christians could put these things behind us? You know, it, it, it almost kind of echoes what 
Thomas and Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone originally wanted to do way back in the day. What if we could put all of these differences that divide us behind us and we could just be Christians and be a real force for unity in the world? I mean, that's how the restoration movement started. It was a unity movement. What if we could do that? How much more powerful would the church be as a force for good in the world? How much more compelling would the message of Jesus be if we could consistently apply that message and extend love and grace to one another as we endeavor to take that love of Jesus to the rest of the world that desperately needs it? How much more of an impact could we have if we quit bickering and fighting over all of these things, like whether or not you can have a piano in the building (laughs) or how many cups you're going to use on the table or whether Calvinism is true or Arminianism is true or whatever else you want to throw at it. What if we could get past that and we could take the love of Jesus to a world that is so full of polemic positions, that's so full of animosity towards the other, that is so full of hatred and angst and fear and anxiety? How much of an impact could the church have? How much of an impact could we have as Christians if we could cease the bickering and the infighting amongst one another and we could truly pursue unity in the bond of peace? How much more potent could we be to the cause of Christ? And I think it would make a huge difference if we could let go of those things. And hopefully, hopefully this dialogue will be a starting point for that. I mean, Maybe 2,000 years of history can begin to be undone here in uh, 2021 in in rural America. Well, and I, I think people are seeing, I mean, the fact of of people asking questions, people asking us questions, there are so many, and it's so encouraging to me because when I first started changing, I felt alone. I, I felt like I was just so weird for thinking these things. I almost you felt too, like this, brother. this was blasphemy. I was like, I hope God doesn't hear my thoughts. I mean, I know he does, but I'm hoping he's not hearing this. I don't want him to get upset at me for questioning these things. And and finally, just understanding that God's a loving father and understanding that God has many children, not just not just the ones that, that I thought he had. <laughs> and, and, and yeah. you know, I wasn't just a special child. I mean, I am. I believe to God. I believe everybody's a special child to God. And, and when we talk about all believers and what that entails, it I keep using the word broaden the spectrum because that's really what it comes down to. I'm not asking anyone to give up their conviction. I'm not asking anyone to 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 not feel like they can openly and honestly talk about why they feel the way they do. I'm actually saying we need to have more of that, but we need to have more of that through the filter of love, through the filter of grace, through the filter of patience. And people, when they say, well, yeah, Kevin, I know you read all those passages about love, but what is love? Well, First Corinthians 13 gives you a whole list. Love is patient. Love is kind. I mean, it goes through all of the different words to describe what love is. And if that's not enough, Jesus Christ is the embodiment of love. God is love and and Jesus is God incarnated. And so when Jesus talked to the woman at the well, that's what love looks like. When Jesus, when he when he helped the sinners, when he hung out with the sinners, when he that that's what love looks like. And so you you have to study who Jesus Christ is in order. Now I'm really just getting on it here tonight because so much of this I'm talking I'm going to be talking about in my book. But it's it's when you look at the character of the Bible and the narrative arc, this is where the focus is, and it, it doesn't mean the one thing I want to be careful, so careful of, is this doesn't mean anything and everything goes. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Lee's saying. 
But what it's saying is let's have more space. Let's create more space so that we can have these kind of conversations. And by the way, if you end up still being just as convicted on what you're convicted on, then that's what you have to ultimately live by. I mean, we all are having to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. I get that. And I understand that. But here's what I want to emphasize. The safe place, the safe road, taking the safe option is never drawing more lines. It's never condemning. It's never it's never abusing. It's never oppressing. That's never the safe route to go. So if you really want to take the safe route, the safe route is always being more tolerant, not less tolerant, always being more merciful, not less merciful, always being more accepting, not less accepting. That's the safe route if you really are looking at the character and the narrative arc of the Bible. And that narrative arc of the Bible and the all-encompassing message, that's exactly it. And I want to circle back around as we as we get this wrapped up. I want to go back over to James 2 and 13 because we mentioned it earlier and I paraphrase it, but I really want to just read it verbatim, word for word, if I can. And here in James chapter 2 and verse 13, the New King James Version reads this way. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And the entire theme of Scripture and all of those passages that you quoted and that you read from earlier, they all circle back around to that theme that James sums up there. Mercy has more value. Mercy has a higher intrinsic quality to it than what judgment does. So as we explore faith, what are we to pursue? We're to pursue mercy. We're to pursue grace. And that means leaning on God's grace, but also extending grace to our brothers and sisters in Christ from every tribe, no matter where they belong or no matter where they fly their flag. And and I've got one more passage to to summarize unity as well when we just think of the concept, because this isn't just pie in the sky theology. We're not just pulling this out of thin air. We're, we're trying to understand this from a biblical perspective, and not just a biblical perspective, but a, a Christocentric perspective. And Colossians 3.12, I, I believe, sums it up the best. I, I really do. When we, Everything we just talked about, listen to what Paul wrote to the Colossians. He said, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves, and notice this, with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now, I'm about to read the next verse, but before I do, I want to say that one more time. Clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. When I believed that everyone had to see things the way that I saw it, and when I believed all those passages about unity actually meant further division, because if you didn't believe the way I believed, I had to withdraw from you, I didn't have compassion. I didn't have kindness. I certainly didn't have humility. When you believe you're always right, you can't have humility. Those two things can't coexist. I didn't have gentleness, and I certainly didn't have patience with people. So this is what it says. Once you clothe yourself with that, listen, bear with one another and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And above all these things, once again, there's another above all, We see it, Peter says it, now Paul's saying it, above all, put 
on love because these things bind them all together in a perfect unity. If you want unity, let's start with these passages. Let's not let's not go digging up to try to find sin passages and say, okay, what can we what can we tolerate and what can we not tolerate? Well, to what extent should we tolerate it? And how long should we tolerate it? Folks, if we don't have these things first, we're never going to even try to strive for unity. We we are literally striving for division when we think that that unity is uniformity. We are unintentionally striving for division. This is how we're going to strive for unity. So I want to say this one more time. I want to read it because I broke it down. I want to read it. Bear with one another and forgive one another. If any of you has agreed, well, actually, let me go back to verse 12. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And above all these, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. That is a perfect place to bring this conversation to a close, brother. If that doesn't describe unity from a biblical perspective, I don't know what does. That was fantastic. So, man, thank you for having this conversation. This was this was a good episode. I really enjoyed this conversation. You got fired up. I got fired up a little bit. And, you know, Preacher Kevin started coming back, and Preacher Lee kind of got in there a little bit, the, too. The, the Grace version, 2.0. The Grace version, yeah. The yeah. Grace version. The Grace Kevin, version. Yeah, can't wait to see 3.0, man. But, yeah, this <laughs> – yeah, this was a good conversation. Well, and, and, and look, this is, you know, I, I you sometimes get fired up, I get fired up. I never want anybody to take that it, it, the wrong way because this is stuff I truly lived and Lee has truly lived. I understand the thoughts and questions that are going through your mind right now. I, I get it. I get it because yeah, I really, I, you know, and you get it. We This is how, this is what brought us back together because it can be a dark place. And, and this is something that I'm very passionate about because, man, it can be depressing. It can be stressful. It can cause anxiety. It can cause doubt. You can start blaming God. You start blaming the Bible. You start getting bitter. And when you change, when you have a paradigm shift like we did, man, it just changes everything. I love people more now. I love God more than I've ever loved God. I've, I respect the scriptures more so than I've ever respected them in my life. And so I, I understand where people can be, but I also understand where they can end up. And and it's a good place. It's a good place. So just keep pursuing it. Absolutely. Continue to pursue grace. And don't be afraid to explore your faith. Hey, that's what this podcast is called. How about it? Well, we always want to thank our listeners. Uh, we hope that you're as blessed with this conversation as we were having it. This was a really good conversation. This may be my new favorite episode. But we always want to invite you to share this podcast with your friends, share it on social media, spread it far and wide, let other folks know about it. If you're getting something out of it, that's awesome. That's what it's all about. That's why we're doing this. We're not doing this to make money. In fact, it costs us money to put it on. And that's okay. That's okay. This is something we love to do. We're passionate about it. And if we can be a help to some other people paying a little bit of money to put this thing out there, that's a very, very small price to pay if it helps our brothers and sisters and other folks navigate these waters that Kevin and I spent so much time in trying to work through. If you have anything that you want to hear, if you have any topics you'd like for us to discuss, guests that you'd like for us to have on, drop us a line. We have the email address there in the show notes. Send that to us. And we thank you all very, very much. As always, 
We'd never want to dismiss without asking you for that five-star review. Give us that five-star review in iTunes. Give it to us on whatever platform you choose to listen to our podcast on. We thank you again, and we wish you all Godspeed.